So this will be a five, five lessons on the Trinity. This, of course, is lesson one, introduction to the Trinitarian doctrine. This is the intro. Then we'll have three where we break down God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then the fifth lesson will be anti-Trinitarian heresies because there's a lot of them out there, and we'll understand it. And then um, we'll conclude with the Athanasian Creed, uh, which is part of... Um, uh, part of doctrinal dogma that was established about the 5th century. And anyway, you're going to learn a lot. This is definitely heavy doctrine, and yet it's very basic at the same time. Um, Anyway, let's jump into this. The term Trinity is not found in the Scriptures. Everybody should know that if you studied your Bible, you'd say, yeah, I don't think I've ever seen the word Trinity anywhere. Well, like Dr. Barclay points out, the word Bible is not in your Bible. Neither is the word rapture. Although the concept it expresses is overtly scriptural. So we have to build a doctrine because we keep seeing a pattern and then you have to come up with a term to summarize what you're expressing. That's how science works. That's how knowledge works. The doctrine of the Trinity was implicitly held by the apostles and the New Testament writers, but not formulated explicitly. And so what that means is you can see that they held it in their writings. They held this doctrine, though they never explicitly said this is this doctrine. They just kind of spoke of it, and you would have to gather it by contextual clues. As one commentary stated, they held it as it were in solution. That is the doctrine of the Trinity. Only time, reflection, And the shock of controversy and opposition, that would be the third century heresies, the shock of controversy. Only uh, time, reflection, and the shock of controversy and opposition caused it to crystallize into definite and dogmatic form. And so this is why uh, our, our scriptures do not contain the term Trinity, though it is understood throughout the Old and New Testament. But the church fathers, beginning in the third and fourth century, began to crystallize it and put a term and define it because heresies were arising that were denying it. And so the church is often, unfortunately, a little reactive instead of being proactive. We don't really do anything until we're attacked. Rather than thinking ahead and being proactive and building fortifications and buttresses like the wise kings of Israel did in anticipation of an assault, it does seem like for 2,000 years the church has always been playing pick up the pieces or behind the eight ball. You and I as Christians should be more proactive in our faith. And by that we mean don't wait till you're sick to believe God for healing. Don't wait till you're broke to believe God for money. Don't wait till your kids are rebellious to begin to pray and teach them the Bible. We need to be proactive in our faith. The problem with the American church is that it is always reactive. And by the time the problem is at our doors, the enemy is so far entrenched, we're all but sunk. So let us be proactive in our private lives. Consider some other quotes concerning the Trinity from theology, and I I can't give references to all these quotes, but some of them I can, and so I do. Uh, First quote, the doctrine of the Trinity is not so much heard as overheard in the statements of the Scripture. That, again, is expressing how the doctrine of the Trinity is in the Word, but it's not explicit. George P. Fisher said, What meets us in the New Testament is this disjecta membra, or the scattered fragments of the Trinity. J.P. Foster said, The doctrine of the Trinity is the Christian attempt to make intelligible the personality of God without dependence on the world. And then a final quote, Though the doctrine of the Trinity is not discoverable by human reason, it is susceptible of a rational defense when revealed. 
So the mind, the human mind can't conceive it, and it is considered the greatest mystery of the New Testament or of the Bible. It is hard to reason or understand with the mind, but once you see it, it's so easy to defend. And we have to understand as we begin to look at this doctrine of the Trinity, we are finite beings, and so the first 10 or 20 years of our life, we're totally dealing with finite concepts, one-dimensional materialism, your body's material, carpet is material, the pacifier is material. You can only understand finite things you can touch. When we deal with God in the spirit realm, we're dealing with things that have phases and dementia that are beyond the natural realm. As Corinthians says, the things that are unseen that are eternal, the things that are seen are temporary. And until you become a spiritual and a mature Christian, all you understand is the material and the finite. When you begin to grow in Christ, you begin to understand the spiritual and the eternal. And so just keep that in mind. Tertullian, and that was the second century father of Latin theology. He's really considered the father of theology, period. But he was second century. He's credited with coining the term Trinity, though his understanding was still in development. And so he was beginning to piece together the doctrine of the Trinity that had laid in the scriptures for a hundred years since John finished writing his revelation. And then, of course, the whole Old Testament speaks of the Trinity. But Tertullian, it took 200 years before he begins to work out this doctrine that we understand it. And nobody, no conservative theologian would ever deny the doctrine of the Trinity. But we'll see here that it took a good solid 400 years to be worked out and dogmatized and codified and put down. And so I say that because we have to understand there are still things in the scriptures we don't understand. There are still doctrines in the Word of God to be worked out. If, if the Trinity doctrine is so overt and so obvious, why did it take 400 years for the church fathers to nail it down line upon line and to work it out with all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation? If, don't you know there's got to be other things that we haven't quite worked out yet? Amen. Of course there are. And so... There's other doctrines that can be studied that folks will argue and say, well, these, these doctrines weren't held until the 19th century or to the 18th century. So God has progressively revealed himself. And if I got 100 verses to back something up, who cares if we just figured that thing out 10 years ago? I think that's pretty simple. To think that all doctrine was understood 2,000 years ago, period. That's to say the first century church fathers had all wisdom and knowledge. It doesn't work that way. The full doctrine as we understand it was not fully formulated until the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., though here, even in the, uh, the Nicene Creed or the Council of Nicaea, which was the first council of the church held at Constantinople to combat heresies, here it is still deemed to be only semi-Trinitarian by today's understandings. So even by the 4th century, 325 A.D. is considered 4th century, it's still in development. The critical aspect to understanding the nature of the Trinity is to know that there are three eternal distinctions in the substance of God. And so what we do in our finite minds, in our understandings as intellects, as we try to put words to explain this eternal principle of the nature of God. God is one substance, which is the best verbiage anybody has come up with in 1,600 years. God is one substance, and what does that even mean to us, but three persons. God is one substance, 
but three distinct persons. But it's the substance of God, but three distinct persons. And we'll look at this more as we go. This next little section we call, or I call it, Strong's, as in A.W. Strong, Angus Strong, or A.H. Strong, excuse me. Strong's Six Trinitarian Statements. If you know Strong's Concordance, this is the same Strong, Mr. Strong. He didn't just handwrite a concordance of every word in the Bible. He was also a phenomenal theologian. I happen to have his theological commentaries, and they are invaluable. The doctrine of the Trinity can be summarized by the following six statements. and I've adopted these from Angus Hopkins Strong, circa, or uh, copyrighted or written 1907. Number one, in Scripture there are three who are recognized as God. That is the beginning of our Trinitarian doctrine. The Scriptures refer to the Father as God. The Scriptures refer to the Son as God. And the Scriptures refer to the Spirit as God. And yet, when you study the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they all have distinct roles that are separate in responsibilities. That's what the next three lessons we're going to cover will look at. What the assignment and job description, if you will, of the Father, what is the assignment and job description of the Son, and now for us in the church age, what is the job description and assignment of the Holy Spirit? Uh, Because, not to sound controversial, the work of Jesus Christ is done. On the cross of Calvary, that was, he said, for this reason have I come. This is my purpose. And then he said, it's finished. And then he sent back the Holy Spirit. So though it's We term it the work of God. It is the assignment of the Holy Spirit in the earth today. Again, we're already falling into the quagmire that is the Trinity. One substance, three persons. And though we'll interchange these words, if we were to parse and dissect them according to Scripture, we could say that's the work of the Holy Spirit, that's the work of Jesus, that's the work of the Father, and we would be accurate. Or we could just say God's God's moving. When in doubt, you just say God's moving, and it's accurate as well. Amen. Number two, these three persons are so described in Scripture that we are compelled to conceive of them as distinct persons. They are so fully fleshed out, if you will, that's kind of a literary term, their character, their personality, their nature, their assignment, their authority level, which gets into uh, a semi-controversy we'll resolve in the fifth lesson, uh, that we are, we are motivated, we are compelled to conceive of them as three distinct persons. Number three, this tri-personality of the divine nature is not merely economic. And what that means is um, we have three personalities and we're not just dividing them uh, for distribution of power. Economies or economic doesn't just refer to money, but it means distribution of, of resources and power. So they're not just distributed to have three different roles, but this tri-personality is also imminent. That is, it is forever. So it will forever be the Father. It will forever be the Son. It will forever be the Spirit. It's not just separated right now for efficiency. I'm trying to put it into modern lingo because when you study old theology, they had a vocabulary that people today can't R-O-T-F-L understand. That is to say, roll on the floor laughing because it's gobbledygook to this generation. I still, I I shake my head that we're communicating with index fingers and thumbs. The modern leader of the free world steers the world with thumb texts. And great minds like Strong, we have to have subheadings on his words that he uses because he assumes you know what he's talking about. And we may have to have a 15 minute 
vocabulary lesson to understand brilliant theology. The tri-personality is divided not just for distribution of power in this dispensation or this age. It is forever the nature of God. Forever be three parts. So it is both, it's imminent and eternal. It's not just economic and temporal. Number four, this, uh, this tri-personality is not tri-theism. It's not three separate gods. It is one substance of God, but three personalities, three persons. For while there are three persons, there is but one essence. That's the other term you'll see, substance and essence. Number five, the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal. And number six, inscrutable, that means mysterious, yet not self-contradictory, this doctrine furnishes the key to all other doctrines. All right, so that was A.H. Uh, Strong's summary of, of the, the Trinitarian doctrine. <laughs> we used to write worship songs about the doctrine, you know, holy, holy, holy God in three persons, blessed Trinity, and now we sing worship songs. Ooh, yeah, you love me, love me, love me, love me. Ooh, yeah. Oh, Lord Jesus, help this modern church because the amount of doctrine in the typical modern worship song is less than a thimble. And the Bible commands us in Ephesians and Colossians that we teach and admonish one another in psalms, that's music, hymns, that's music, and spiritual songs. So probably 90% of the modern worship industry violates Scripture. Ooh, yeah, you love me, love me, love me. All right, scriptural basis for the Trinity. Let's look at the Bible. Once the Trinitarian doctrine is understood, it is impossible to not see in the scriptures. Now, there is a, a prominent heresy today called oneness Pentecostalism. And if you're dealing with United Pentecostal Church, which is the denomination UPC, they hold this doctrine. They deny a Trinity. I will not call them heretics. I will call them ignorant. Because I know a lot of them, and they love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. But of this doctrine, they are willfully ignorant. I've been in their services. The Holy Ghost moves. People get born again. People get water baptized. People get filled with the Holy Ghost. But all three of those are different works of the Trinity. It just goes to show you, you don't have to understand what you're doing to get it done. T.D. Jakes is a oneness. He denies the Trinity, as do some of your other very prominent, famous TBN preachers just to throw that out there. T.D. Jakes may be one of the most famous. Phillips, Craig, and Dean was a famous uh, worship team. In fact, we do the song, I See the Worshippers Arise, written by oneness guys. Wonderful song, but they deny the Trinity. And I don't understand how or why. I, we're not going to be like third, fourth, and maybe even uh, 15th century where you don't believe in the Trinity, let's burn you at the stake. How does that solve a problem? Whatever happened to just polite discourse. Let's debate the scriptures. Nope. Torches. Torches. Torches for you all. We disagree. You're going to burn. How is that? The, how worketh now the love of Christ? <laughs> all right. From the very first verse, and let me, let me say this. When we get done with these two, three pages, you're going to say, well, duh. And then you're going to say, I didn't realize the Trinity was that prevalent through the whole Bible. How could you not see it? Amen. From the very first verse, the Bible alludes to the Trinitarian nature of God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, Elohim, not El Shaddai, not Jehovah, not 
Adonai, Elohim. In the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. The very first reference to God and the very first name ascribed to God is Elohim, the mighty ones, plural. Elohim is a plural term, the mighty ones. Elohim is used 32 times in the 31 verses of Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> Every time it says God, 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 for the first 31 verses of the Bible, it's mighty ones, Elohim. And you miss it when you read it in English, but if you were to be a Hebrew scholar, which I am not and don't ever intend to be, but this stuff's all been researched and studied a thousand times over, you see that it is Elohim, the mighty ones. So from the very beginning, the mighty ones created the heavens and the earth. Three gods? No. One substance, three persons. Genesis 1.26, New King James Version. Then God said, God, Elohim, same word Elohim, let us, it's a plural pronoun, make man in our, plural, image, and in our, plural, likeness. Notice that there's three personal pronouns there. Us, our, and our. Trinity. God uses plural pronouns to describe himself. He doesn't speak in the third person. He speaks in the three persons. That's an English grammatical joke there. I know my English people are on this half because they're giggling. Everybody over here is like, huh? <laughs> Come on. That, that's a sharp level of wit to make a grammar joke in the middle of teaching on the Trinity. And I'm accused of being a meanie weenie. We're having a lot of fun. Of course, there's no sin present this morning. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, very famous passage. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor. The Counselor is the Holy Spirit's job, the paraclete. The Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, it's God the Father, the Prince of Peace. So, this messianic prophecy concerning the birth of Jesus describes him as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Counselor, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. This is done and prophesied 700 years before Christ was born. Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord, that's Adonai, Jehovah, is upon me, because the Lord, Jehovah, has anointed me to preach tidings unto the meek, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, Jehovah, and the day of vengeance of our God, Elohim. So I, I highlight and I give you the Hebrew words so you can understand. The Lord Jesus read this passage in every synagogue before he preached. This famous passage from Isaiah reveals the Trinity. The Spirit is upon Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit from the Father is on me. There's a trinity in operation there. To proclaim the year of the Lord and the day of the Father. So the year of the Lord of the vengeance and the day of our Father. So this almost has two references to the trinity within one prophecy, within one verse, or two verses. And the entire trinity is involved in preaching the gospel. If it took the word anointed of the Spirit by the Father that preached the Word, we're going to have to have the same action of the Trinity working in our life. We're born again by the will of God, through the blood of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit. It's pretty simple once you begin to see it, though how do you break it down and explain it? It's, uh, it's a mystery. 
How about in the Gospels? Matthew 3, 16 through 17. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. So here we have the Trinity in manifestation at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Jesus is in the water. The Son of God, the Word made flesh, is in the water. And he looks up and he sees the Holy Spirit like a dove. It doesn't look like a dove. In the form of a dove or in the manner of a dove, lighting upon him. As in, it didn't say like a lightning bolt, which is a fast, sharp strike. But like a dove, which is, you know, that's more like a pigeon. What kind of noise does a dove make? Very similar? All right. If Chad was in here, he could tell us, because usually it's followed by a bang, 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 bang. <laughs> Chad is very biblical in his hunting. He arrives, he kills, he eats. In season, out of season, doesn't matter to him. Like a dove, gently resting upon the sun, and at the same time, a voice from heaven saying, this is my son. So who's that speaking? It's the father. Because the Holy Spirit is resting upon the son who's about to rise up as the Messiah, the Christ, and do the works of the father by the work of the Holy Spirit. I, just, I look at this and I think, how in the world can you not believe in the Trinity? One of my dear friends who I've had wonderful times of Bible study with, he's a oneness guy, and uh, he's a Pentecostal. United Pentecostal, which is the doc, denomination that doesn't believe in the, in the Trinity. So I ran through a bunch of these verses with him five, six, seven, eight years ago. We were sitting in my office. And I said, what's your answer for this and this and this and this and this? I said, you say you guys, you Pentecostals don't believe in the Trinity. You're oneness. How do you answer these verses? And he looked at me and said, no answer. He had no answer. He looked at me and said, I never said I was a good Pentecostal. As if to say, I have no answer for you, man. You, you got me. In fact, as I was writing this and putting the final touches on it last night, I thought, I'm going to email this to him. Just say, just for your edification and encouragement, just so you know, you guys have a lot right, but this you get way wrong. The Trinity was present at the Lord's baptism. Jesus was in the water. The Holy Spirit was coming upon him. Then God the Father spoke from heaven. Pretty simple. John 14, 16. And I... Jesus speaking, will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. The entire Trinity in another verse. All these verses we've looked at contain the entire Trinity. So you're not even having to put 16 verses together. We're looking at verses that, only verses that put the entire Trinity in one verse. Now, I don't understand, well, I do. The heresy, and again, I'm not calling UPCs, United Pentecostals, heretics. It's just a doctrinal ignorance. We all have our own ignorant blind spots. But what, what oneness says is that there's different phases. So in the Old Testament, it was the Father. And then he changed phases to the Son. But honestly, the oneness folks say Jesus only now. So I'm not really sure because I've not debated them what they do with the Holy Spirit and how they explain that person away, though they believe in the Holy Spirit because they're tongue talkers. But I look at this verse, and Jesus is speaking. He's going to pray to another person, the Father, to ask for another person, the Comforter, to come and help people. 
how is this just one thing going on here? I don't even know if they know for sure. The promise of the Holy Spirit involved the mobilization of the entire Godhead. Jesus prayed to the Father so the Father would give the Comforter to the believers. Pretty simple. John 15, 26. But when the Comforter is come, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I, Jesus, will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. This verse mentions the Trinity twice. <laughs> By the time we're done with this lesson, we'll, we won't even have a dead horse. We'll just have a strap of leather that is decaying in our hand. And we'll think, well, what's that there? I've totally forgot what I even had in my hand. Oh, it was the Trinity doctrine because we're going to beat a dead horse, drag it through the desert, wear the saddle out, lose the skeleton, and just let even the leather bridle dissolve in our hand because this is how evident it is. Let's read that verse again. <laughs> when the Comforter, who is that? The Holy Spirit is come, whom I, Jesus, will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, who shall proceed from the Father, he shall testify of me. Like the theologian said, what we hear, what we see are the fragments of the Trinity scattered throughout all the scriptures. I don't know if there's fragments. It's just like, kind of like right there. This verse has two witnesses. Even if all we had was this verse, we could have the doctrine of the Trinity because this verse mentions it twice. John 16, 13 through 15. Let's do this again. This is fun for me. <laughs> I have to stop here. Years ago, I had a young couple come to my office. They obviously don't go to church here anymore. I could tell they were being poisoned by an even greater ding-a-ling than them. Don't worry, there's always a greater ding-a-ling. It's like there's always a stronger Christian. And they came to me. I don't know if I've ever been so offended in my whole life. And they said, we're, number one, they were a lot younger than me. They said, we're very concerned for you, Pastor. Oh, Okay, what's your concern? Dr. Barclay taught me to let everybody swing on you once. So I'll let anybody come to my office and swing on me once. So this, they didn't deserve this right. They, didn't, they, they hardly qualified to wipe their nose. But they said, all right, what's your concern? I, I'm ready to hear it out. We don't think you use enough scripture when you preach. All right. Well, can you give me an example? Well, two Sundays ago, we only turned to one scripture. And I said, yeah, that's called a textual sermon. You wouldn't understand that because you don't study the Bible. But from that text, which, by the way, Jesus preached, stood up, read one text, Isaiah 61, and then taught for hours from one text. I said, I was just being like Jesus. I said, but if you would actually go back and listen, I probably quoted a couple verses. So I had Cephas go get the tape. He said, I quoted over 30 scriptures in that sermon. <laughs> They said, you, don't, you just don't use enough scripture when you preach. I said, do you go to come to Sunday school? Yeah. Have you ever looked at any of my Sunday school lessons that I write? There's probably more scripture in one Sunday school lesson than you look at all week. And they still left the church anyway. And now they drink. So anyway, I was just, that just came to me thinking, there's a lot of scripture here. And it's fun for me. John 16. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, 
But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and he shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, therefore said I that he, the Holy Spirit, shall take of mine and show it unto you. We see the Trinity through the work of the Holy Spirit revealed again. The Father's only mentioned once. The Holy Spirit's mentioned. Actually, I have it here. This famous paracletical passage exalts the Trinity. These three verses reference the Holy Spirit 11 times. References Jesus five times and the Father once. And now I guess we could flip it over to the denominational side. If Jesus exalted the Holy Spirit 11 times in three verses, how come they don't let the Holy Spirit move once in a month? This kind of passage tells us when the Lord's gone and he ascends, it's all going to be about the Holy Spirit. So let him have his way. This verse exalts the Holy Spirit, these two, three verses, twice as much as the Lord Jesus. And you can kind of see the Lord Jesus beginning to segue in a sense, stepping out of the way and letting the Holy Spirit show up, though the Holy Spirit's only going to do things authorized by the Lord Jesus. Acts in the epistles. Acts 10.38, one of the best verses in the book of Acts. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth, not Jesus Christ. Until he's anointed, he's not Christ. Christ means anointed. Christ means anointed one. How God anointed, so here's the Father anointing the Son with the Holy Ghost and power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So very famous passage about healing and breaking the power of the devil and darkness, but how God, the Father, anointed Jesus, the Son, with the Holy Spirit. Again, the entire Trinity at work in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. How, how we can deny that? passage i have no idea but very famous verse especially when you want to get somebody healed jesus of nazareth notice it doesn't say christ from heaven jesus of nazareth was the trinity in full operation in the earth that's pretty exciting colossians 2 says that now that we're born again we have all the fullness of the godhead in us because it's one person or one substance one essence now that that's pretty powerful. I was talking to somebody about this recently. That if we have the fullness of the Godhead, where's the evidence? If we have all the fullness of the Godhead, should we not be going about affecting people? Jesus taught his disciples, when you walk into a place, tell them the kingdom of God has just come near you. And he also said the kingdom of God is within you. How can we tell a stranger the kingdom of God has come near you? Because it's in us. And yet the thing that I know has got to frustrate God is the fullness of God dwells in the truly born-again believers, and yet you can't even tell most of the time because we choose to live as mere mortals. We choose to live as Americans. We choose to live as Westerners or whatever our culture is. We choose to live in this kingdom rather than God's kingdom. But this is one of the most indicting statements from the New Testament is that if the fullness of the Godhead dwells in us, it should make a difference. It should make a difference. There should be a difference in our lives. We should live differently. We should have more joy, more peace, more strength, more victory, more courage, more hope, more expectancy. Our marriages should be prettier. Our money should be tighter. Our health should be more vigorous. Our voice should be louder. People should respect us or even fear us. 
They should say, those are the believers, those are the Christians, stay away from them unless you want them to pray against you. In China right now, the communists fear the underground church because they pray and things happen. Our government does not fear the church. Our government mocks the church because, honestly, the church, generally speaking, in the West is just a bunch of head knowledge and, and false morality. We forfeited moral ground 30 years ago. Even our great leaders don't walk in much morality. And the thing is, we've become religious in the West. We're not Holy Ghost empowered. We are just, we have knowledge like everybody else. Our knowledge is just Bible knowledge. Where's the power? Where's the demonstration? Where's the victory? The church has the same divorce rate as the world. The church has nearly the same homosexual rate as the world. The church has the same drug addiction rate as the world. The church has the same obesity rate as the world. Where's the distinction? When all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in a little vessel, there ought to be a distinction. When the fullness of God came upon Christ in the River Jordan, there became a difference. And nobody could argue with it. And that's the goal of every Christian is to become more like Jesus every day and less like your last name, less like your community, less like your nation. Because if we can become like Jesus, then we can turn our family into the kingdom of God. We can turn our community into the kingdom of God. We can turn our nation back into the kingdom of God. Should be pretty simple to do, but getting everybody to live that way seems to be pretty tough. All right. Romans 8, 27. And he that searches the hearts, that's Jesus, knows what is the mind of the Holy Spirit because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So whole trinity in one verse. Pauline epistle. And here the entire trinity is at work on the behalf of the saints through the act of intercession. I think that's pretty cool. I've, also, I've preached that before and I've said, ha, I kind of humbly ask how messed up are we that the entire trinity has to get to work interceding for us through our own mouth through groanings that cannot be uttered <laughs> I, I, I this is a joke but i almost think the holy spirit says man you're so messed up we don't want anybody who even might know this tongue to understand how messed up you are let's just groan because <laughs> that's what the verse says with groanings that cannot in an unintelligible language what the Greek says, with groanings that cannot be uttered. Anybody ever groan in the Spirit? Most of us should because this verse promises it. I can always tell when I'm under attack or when something is, is moving against me because for whatever reason, it's lots of time in the shower. We have a bench in our shower. I'll sit in the shower and just groan. I'm, just, I'm faking it right now. But that's a lot what it sounds like. It's a deep, guttural groan. And I try to pray in tongues, but tongues doesn't come out. A groaning comes out. And I think, well, I don't know what's happening, but I'm glad I can pray in tongues and it not happen. Yeah. But I'll walk a little softer and a little bit closer to God till this thing stops. Yeah. <laughs> but just to humble ourselves, the entire Trinity, according to Romans 8, 27, has to work on our behalf to help our weaknesses. Because verse 26 says... We don't know how to pray as we ought. It's one of our infirmities. Uh, the Spirit likewise helpeth our infirmities, for we know not how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit maketh intercession with groanings that cannot, cannot be uttered. So then it goes on to say, how about he that searches the hearts, which is Jesus, according to Jeremiah 17 and Revelation 2. 
makes intercession, or he knows what is the mind of the Spirit, and he makes intercession according to the will of the Father. So then the famous verse, 828, kicks in, and we know that all things work together for the good of them. How can all things work together? When you let the Holy Spirit intercede with groanings that cannot be uttered. And unless you're willing to proceed with the two previous verses, you can't claim the third one. And Romans 8.28 is the most oft-hijacked, oft-misapplied, I don't have an answer and you're going through hell, all things work together for the good. I don't know if you can apply it like that. It feels good, but it may be a false pleasantry. Because 8.28 is preceded by groanings that cannot be uttered when you acknowledge that you're not praying as you should. And yet, all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and that are called according to his purpose. If you're praying in tongues, letting the Holy Ghost groan, allowing the Holy Spirit to listen to the Lord who's judging your hearts and finding out where you're messed up, and letting the Father move. Amen. Just some doctrine there. 1 Corinthians 7, 17. But as God hath distributed, God the Father hath distributed every man as the Lord hath called so let him walk, even so ordain I in all churches. Almost done. God distributes, but the Son calls, and Paul ordained this command under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So in this verse, we have an indirect reference to the Trinity, but we do see very clearly the Father and the Son. Paul's ordaining it, but he's doing it under the authorization of the Holy Spirit because all Scripture is given by inspiration of the Spirit of God. Romans 15:30 Now I beseech you brethren for the for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the spirit that you strive together with your prayers and your prayers to God for me. So we have the whole trinity. 1 Corinthians 12 Now there are diversities of gifts but the same spirit and there are differences of administrations but the same Lord and there are diversities of operations but it is the same God which worketh all in all. Spirit Son, Father. And this is the chapter on the gifts of the Spirit, and yet the Trinity is right there before he kicks off the famous nine gifts of the Spirit. The Trinity is evident in the gracing. That's what the word gifts means, is the grace gift. The Trinity is evident in the gracing, administrating, and operating of the New Testament church. Again, with oneness Pentecostals, they have these gifts, and the Trinity is working in their midst, though they totally are ignorant and deny him. Because they're not heretics intentionally. They don't hold to that heresy intentionally. They hold it in a faith tradition that they need to resolve and be better at. I might also add, they're also kind of stuck in the 1880s with their hair and their dresses. And it's called holiness. But I've seen some bedazzled denim. And I've seen a lot of fancy crocheted stuff up in them beehives. And it's just funny. They try to keep a beautiful woman down by telling her not to wear makeup or wear jewelry. Though Peter says uh, wearing of apparel. They make them wear apparel. But they can't plate their hair, which is braiding. You can't plate your hair, but you can put it in a big fancy beehive. And they're always trying to outdo their beehives. So even their misunderstanding of those passages is quite comical. They love God, might indicate there's a gap in doctrine somewhere. So go study a little closer. All right, almost done. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. 
But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, beloved brethren of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Trinity in that verse. The subtle nuances of this verse help us to discern the roles of the Godhead in the affairs of mankind. Prayers are, in this verse are always directed to the Father in the name of Jesus. And you can see all the different verses where Jesus says, you don't pray to me, you pray to the Father in my name. You pray to the Father in my name. The Father is the planner and the designer. Our sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit, yet we are beloved of the Lord Jesus. Final verse, 1 Peter 1, 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied. Once again, we see the entire Trinity. God the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Each member of the Godhead has a role to play in our lives. God the Father elects us. That means to choose. The Holy Spirit guides our sanctification. If we don't yield to it, He's not just going to sanctify us, but it is called the sanctification of the Spirit. Christ's blood sprinkles us, and all of this is so that we are successful in obeying Jesus our Lord. So it all works. All, all three persons of the Godhead have a different role in our Christian walk. Amen. And that's what we'll spend the next three lessons looking at. God the Father is next week, then God the Son, then God the Holy Spirit. And we're going to look at a lot of scriptures. We won't spend time on each one, but I'm going to list you a lot of verses that kind of build, if we can politely say it or tactfully say it, the job description or the roles of each person of the essence of God. Again, this is a mystery, and we're trying to figure it out. As is evident, there's so much to the doctrine of the Trinity that we have yet to even consider or study. May God bless our understanding on this subject. Amen and amen.